Hello and welcome back to Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. This is where I try to find clear answers to complex things that I mostly don't understand, which can sometimes seem to be everything. South Africa is a complex place, no more so than in its government and governing party and their relationships with our economy. My guest today knows the party and the government and the economy like the back of his hand. Michael Sachs is adjunct professor at the Southern Center for Inequality Studies at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. Before that, he was head of the National Treasury's Budget Office between 2013 and 2017. And before that, he coordinated research at the ANC's head office between 2001 and 2007. Late last year, and I'm assuming, Michael, it was after the medium-term budget policy statement, uh, Prof Sachs wrote a long paper trying to explain how a fiscal crisis had evolved and what might be done about it. When I read it, Michael, I thought I'd underline a few sentences and simply ask you about them. As it turns out, I've underlined almost everything. Um, it might be 57 pages long, but it's a really good read. And you end the paper by arguing that a lot of things need to change. The whole fiscal framework needs to change. And the bargain sort of implicitly struck the beginning of 94, at 94 when we became a proper democracy, um, that that might need to change as well. And it strikes me that that you you, you leave me with, two, with, with a strong impression that not only um, they will eventually taxes have to rise in South Africa, but also that the private sector, for the moment, as you put it in, in your in your paper, um, in the short term, then the inertia blocking a resumption of growth can only be overcome with private investment in the lead. How do you? How does the private sector square its own doldrums, as it were? with the need for it to get up and do something quickly? Well, when I was thinking about that issue, I wasn't so much uh, considering uh, the, the stance of the private sector, but more thinking about the stance of policy. So the stance of policy uh, is very much continues to be uh, with the state in the, in the driving seat. So, so the, the, the kind of central idea on the table to restart uh, a process of economic growth is a uh, public uh, infrastructure investment program. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm not uh, against uh, public infrastructure investment. It's important. But my view is that uh, really, uh, unless you have a process of capital accumulation driven in a capitalist sense uh, by the private sector, um, you know, the public sector, at least not in South Africa and not today, uh, cannot substitute for that. And um, what, what we saw, I mean, we've seen declining uh, economic prospects for a decade, economic growth for a decade, despite substantial efforts at public sector infrastructure investment. And then uh, because those efforts at, pu at public sector infrastructure investment were poorly designed and executed, possibly, uh, particularly at ESCOM. Um, they, they got into trouble. 
And uh, at a later point around 2016, you had a collapse of private sector investment and a collapse of public sector investment simultaneously. So I'm really making a short-term argument here yes. that uh, in order to, 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 to boost uh, growth in the short term, uh, the government really needs to find opportunities for, for, for private sector investment. And that means opening sectors of the economy uh, to, to profit motives, essentially. And the reason I'm making this argument is that there's, there's a strong body of opinion both within government and within the ANC that is hostile to that kind of a position. Because it looks like privatization? Well, yes, because it looks like privatization. I mean, I think the kind of standoff between the private sector, the hostility to the private sector in South Africa from, from the public sector, from public sector actors and from the ruling party is partly an ideological question, uh, hostility to, to uh, privatization, etc. But I think that is actually less important. And what is more important is just the, the sense that the private sector represents, uh, to, to use the, 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 the idiom that's become popular, white monopoly capital and is hostile to not only the state, but to the interests of black people in general in society. And so uh, putting uh, the private sector in the lead, there's a sense in which it means putting white people in the lead. And so I think it's very difficult to disentangle the kind of ideological uh, kind of uh, leanings of, of various elements within the ANC. Uh, from uh, what what we used to long ago call the national question, which is uh, the, yeah. the kind of issue of, I suppose, in a different discourse, race relations, which are embedded within the relationship between the state and the private sector. So, which are which are deep and difficult problems to solve. But I'm 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 essentially in the paper making a short term argument that in the in the very short term we need to uh, create space for the private sector to come into energy, uh, to come into broadband, to come into those network infrastructure industries where the public sector is currently uh, not doing a very good job. I understand. I, 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 I get that. But you, as you say, it's a, very, it's a very difficult thing for the government to have to do. Um, and the likelihood probably is that it won't do that. And what, are, what I wanted to ask you is, what are the consequences, given our current situation, our debt, our, our, um, you know, it doesn't have to remind people that we're living in th through a pandemic. Um, uh, what are the consequences of not fixing what private investment could fix in the short term? Well, um, I, I think the central issue is really the revival of a momentum of growth, that uh, without uh, growth reviving uh, um, and incomes uh, being bigger next year than they were this year, uh, without that happening, we are heading for a certain fiscal crisis. And um, there's very little that fiscal policy itself can do to avoid that. In other words... If you have uh, strong fiscal consolidation, uh, expenditure constraint or tax increases that attempt to solve the fiscal problem, 
they will not succeed unless uh, on their own. I mean, they may be necessary part of the solution, but on their own, they will not succeed without a revival of economic growth. And if they don't succeed, uh, we are heading for a fiscal crisis which will create uh, fundamental uncertainty across the economy and therefore itself uh, um, uh, militate against the revival of economic growth. So, so we, we, we will accelerate a downward spiral. Throughout the paper, you remind us that the government is sort of wedded to this idea, or the ANC is wedded to this idea, that growth will always be there. Um, and it seems to me that now that it's not there, or not, in to, not to the degree that it would want it to be, it literally doesn't know where to turn or what to do. Um, in fact, some of the prescriptions that we're seeing now, and as you say, President Ramaphosa um, thinks he can infrastructure build his way out of trouble. Um, uh, Brian Patel thinks that he can localize his way uh, out of trouble and beneficiate the minerals rather than ship them, dig them up and ship them off to hungry customers. Why? I understand that there's an ideological problem, but does the ANC examine its ideologies um, rigorously enough, do you think? I mean, is it possible for it to look at itself and say, look, there might be a different answer to some of these questions? Well, like I was uh, trying to say, um, certainly ideology is not unimportant. But uh, there's a sense in which if this were simply an ideological problem, it would be much easier to solve. But actually, uh, this, this uh, kind of standoff between uh, the public sector and the private sector reflects uh, a much deeper problem, which is the division in South African society, which remain uh, racialized. And uh, so, in a sense, you've increasingly had um, the the kind of uh, the, the the I mean, goes back to I suppose what Tabo Mbeki was saying about two nations, uh, and the state is accountable to uh, through through democratic elections to people who are largely excluded from uh, the benefits of affluence. Uh, which is the, 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 the kind of world in which the corporate private sector operates. So when you, if, if you are to privatize, let's say, kind of, it, it, I don't think that the government should be running uh, SAA, but uh, there's a sense in which the problem is not anathema to privatization, is that once you hand over SAA to the private sector, you're essentially handing it over to, to your, your, your you, you don't have any access to the jobs, to the, to the opportunities for business, to the wealth that is being generated uh, through SAA or, 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 or destroyed, one might say. But uh, the, the, I think the point I'm making is that uh, um, it, it's almost like each sector, both the private sector and the public sector, is trying to hold on to its own. Uh, sources of of value and legitimacy, and uh, uh, we can't have a process of capital accumulation in the capitalist society unless uh, the private sector 
capital, private capital, and the state are operating uh, together. In the paper, you, you say that South Africa is not a commodity republic, um, uh, despite the fact that we have all these minerals in, in, in the ground. And you, um, uh, you, you, but you then remind us that the party itself, um, back in 2002, was behaving really as if it was a commodity republic. Um, when, and you quote a paper from 2002 um, where it says that this commodity super cycle may continue for another two or three decades. It turned out not to be correct until the minerals intensity of growth stabilizes in China. South Africa has not been able to fully take advantage of high prices for iron ore, manganese ore, coal, ferroal alloys sustained by the boom. Bottlenecks need to be resolved. And I wanted, I just wonder what you think of the other side of this debate, which is the, benef- the, the people who argue that we should be beneficiating our minerals rather than digging them up and shipping them off to customers who we know well. Um, because it does seem to be now have become embedded in Cyril Ramaphosa's sort of new look industrial policy. Um, with Africa as the sort of intended, or the rest of Africa as the intended export market. So uh, when I was saying um, that South Africa is not a commodity republic, I was it was in reference to a particular uh, conception of what that means. And that is, and, and the reason I say we're not a commodity republic is that if you look at our um, revenue, the state, wh- wh- where does the state get revenue from? Very little of it comes from uh, commodities. And I mean, I suppose some might argue that that's because uh, rates of taxation on commodity might be lower. But if you compare us to, say, a Chile, Chile's uh, government revenue is very directly linked to the price of copper. The same probably with Zambia. So there, there, there are countries in which the price of oil or the price of a single commodity is the decisive factor in the in government's revenue, and those are called commodity republics. That's not the case in South Africa, but there are many and and, and commodities as a share of while as a share of exports, they're, they're uh, fundamentally important. Uh, they're not that important as a share of GDP, but there are all kinds of other channels through which global commodity prices have a massive impact on our economic fortunes. One of them you mentioned is the African continent. So most, a lot of our non-commodity exports and, and labor-intensive manufactured exports go to African countries. And those African countries themselves are dependent on commodity prices. Also, there's a link between the commodity cycle and financing conditions faced by South Africa. So when commodity prices are high, we tend to face uh, easy financial conditions. And when commodity prices decline, uh, the opposite happens. So the business cycle inside, although commodities do not appear to be a central aspect of our revenue, or they, they, they are fundamental to business conditions in South Africa. That's that's the kind of point I was making. I think um, the, the the debate about beneficiation. I mean, I think in broad terms, you know, we, we need to look at. Uh, we need to think about it. probably beneficiation is the wrong word. We are, I think we do need to accept that commodities are 
at the center of our economy and ask how can we uh, diversify from that base. So that might be um, services that we provide to other commodity republics that, that we might be uh, good providers of, which is kind of an upstream input into commodities. So I think the kind of beneficiation, the kind of downstream, you're going to take the platinum and process it in South Africa is only one uh, um, kind of uh, crude measure of a, of a much broader set of strategies that we should be pursuing. Um, but ultimately, um, I don't think, I kind kind of tend to think that the future is in services. And in a sense, uh, it is the services in our economy that uh, we need to think about how we, we develop and grow. And, the, and services in the, in the distant future are fundamentally linked to our human capital. And therefore, I think that uh, as well as focusing on kind of industrial policy questions like how do we beneficiate platinum, we need a much bigger and stronger focus on our social policy, the social policy basis of society, that we need to begin thinking of health and education and public housing policy as core economic issues that constrain South Africa's economy. Um, and and we, we need to address those. Yeah. And, and there's a tendency to, 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 in the economic debate, to kind of leave those aside and think we're going to solve the problem with uh, industrial policy interventions. And once we have uh, achieved, solved the problem with industrial policy, we'll then have money for education. Instead of seeing that actually the way we structure our cities through public housing or the way we structure our education and health services are fundamental uh, elements of the growth process. You make a point in the in, in often in the paper about um, how things can go wrong, and 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 sometimes, as you point out, that people just make mistakes. You know, the ESCOM ESCOM's new build of two big power stations is a mistake. Um, is it possible that the government routinely makes mistakes? And and simply doesn't and doesn't have the facility to recognise them until it's too late. I'm, I think, for instance, sorry to throw out a random example at you out of the paper, but you know the the, the decision, for instance, to to um, to split the post bank from the post office triggers the uh, resignation of uh, a head of the post office who was doing a reasonable job. Uh, and since and the the post bank since then has gone, nothing has happened yet. This is two years ago now. Surely we should be more careful with what with what we do. I mean, is it possible? Do ministers simply do what they want to do without having to account to cabinet or the, a collective? How does it work? Uh, so everybody makes mistakes, I suppose, uh, in the context of um, different sectors of society. The question is, how do you respond to the, the mistakes you made? And in a uh, democracy in which we have, uh, you know, the ANC has been in power for a very long time. Uh, it tends to, that tends to blunt 
the mechanisms that might be there to to uh, um, prevent or respond to mistakes. So, so I don't think uh, we uh, you could say that it was a mistake. You know, in two thousand and seven, we we uh, load shedding started, and it was clear that a mistake had been make made uh, in 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 the way we govern and manage our energy generation sector. At that point, a mistake had already been made, uh, because which was reflected in load shedding. Um, but then we went on to make uh, additional mistakes in the way we conceived of and executed. I don't think it was a mistake to build additional generation capacity. That was obviously needed. But the way we did it, and again, with an overly state-led approach, I think, and a kind of mega-project approach, so the idea was that we're going to build the two biggest power stations, coal-fired power stations ever, was probably a mistake in hindsight. I don't know whether anyone was arguing for something different at the time. But I think, yeah, we need to think about uh, how do we, what, what are the structures involved in the electricity supply industry, the policy structures and the corporate structures that result in mistake after mistake in after mistake that, that, that have their roots in a sense in, in going back to the early nineties. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of, we, we may have been excessively mistaken in our construction of Medupi and Kusile, but these are things that happen all over the world. It's not a uniquely South African phenomenon that uh, large mega infrastructure projects are uh, decades late and, and multiples over budget. Uh, do you learn what are the are there consequences for those mistakes, and do those consequences translate into different behaviors? And I think. That's where we perhaps have a challenge. Yeah. I mean, one way to test that would be, you know, we, we know that, that private uh, um, sector investors and big companies are desperate to generate either new electricity or their own electricity. Um, and the government simply seems to be, and this is just a casual observer in the middle of nowhere, seems to be terribly, terribly slow in responding to, to in just leaning on that open door. You know, it, it, yeah. um, it's trying to figure out. But I want to come back to something else. So we're in the middle of COVID, Michael, and and um, we have what we're told is, you know, a, an overpopulated public service. Yet when COVID hits us, there are not enough doctors and nurses in our public hospitals to, um, to help patients. And as people get very stressed, obviously people get sick. Um, in the front line, and I think the vaccinations have arrived today, which thank God they really do deserve. Um, uh, but but you make the point in the paper. Uh, so we seem to have, like uh, you know, on one hand, um, a, a large and bloated public service, and two, a shortage of staff. And I wonder how this comes about. You know, you 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 mention in the paper that the combination of expenditure containment from above rising salaries from below leaves departments with two responses. One is to shift budgets from line items, um, you know, goods and, and services. And the other one is to slow down hiring and leave vacant positions unfilled. What's gone wrong there and how does that get fixed? 
So there's been a, a policy inconsistency at the heart of government for, for 10 or 15 years. And that is on the one hand, as growth has decelerated, Treasury has been determined uh, to contain budgets. But on the other hand, uh, for, for whatever reasons, uh, the political uh, leadership has been unable to, to constrain the growth of public sector salaries. So one can argue the, the merits or demerits of either of those options. Uh, well, some might say that austerity is bad and you should spend more, and that's the fundamental problem. Others might say that growing salaries of public servants, they're paid too much, and that's the fundamental problem. I'm not, I'm not, uh, my main point is that these two things are inconsistent and government has failed to resolve this inconsistency. And so when you have a budget that is insufficient to accommodate the salary increases that you have agreed to, um, this uh, results in dysfunction in the public service and you're left with, uh, so, so you leave financial managers in various departments across the country with very little options. One of the options is that you cease hiring. Another option is that you can start cannibalizing your maintenance budget. A third option might be to um, uh, not pay your suppliers of uh, uh, critical inputs, for instance, in the, the, the uh, health sector. So you, you kind of roll over your, your um, goods and services budget. So all of these options have a, have a result of eroding the value of, of public services. Um, so, so the health sector, the public health sector, is in very bad shape and has been under conditions effectively of austerity since about 2013, 2014. Um, and, and despite the, 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 the thing is, is that budgets have been increasing, but because the cost base in the form of public sector salaries and other uh, elements of the cost base have been increasing faster than the budgets. You have something that from the point of view of Treasury looks like increasing expenditure, but from the point of view of an average uh, person who depends on public sector health services, a sharp decline and erosion of the quality of those services. So um, uh, government needs to, uh, and, and I think the same kind of inconsistency is continuing into the present, where on the one hand, government wants fiscal consolidation uh, and, and to stabilize its debt level. It's not a bad thing to achieve. But on the other hand, it also wants a large fiscal stimulus, new programs, uh, new uh, ideas to sustain economic growth, and for those to be funded. And, and if you try and do both of those things at the same time, uh, inevitably the people who pay the price are those who, who depend on frontline services. What happens then, Michael? Because if, if, we, don't, if we can't get out of this, describe to us what, a, what the end of a fiscal crisis looks like. I mean, the wrong end of a fiscal crisis looks like. So we get to the point, presumably, where we can't make a payment or... Or is it is it ever that bad? Is there social unrest? How does how if if you in your paper is sort of quite cataclysmic in some respects, you know, in, in terms of the short term remedies required because I can't see them happening. 
What happens if if the fiscal crisis really explodes? So I think that, first of all, I don't think about it. I think exploding, we're used to an idea of a debt crisis in a in a emerging market such as uh, Argentina, for instance, that's yeah. the kind of image people have in their in their minds. Yeah, and I think that for South Africa, that's kind of the wrong image for a variety of reasons. But the most important uh, reason it is the wrong image is that uh, the debt, South Africa's sovereign debt, is owed uh, is is rand denominated, and what that means is. That, so, so if you look at what happened in Argentina, you 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 know pressures build, and and it's it's like that uh, famous saying of of in Hemingway that you go bankrupt slowly and then all of a sudden, that's what happens in Argentina. Pressures build, and then eventually you can't make a a payment in dollars, uh, and uh, foreign lenders or your foreign creditors then call in the IMF and there's a negotiation which is adjudicated probably in a court in New York and, 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 and such. Because South Africa's debts are, sovereign debts are overwhelmingly RAND denominated, um, that really isn't the picture. The, the, the role of the IMF, the IMF doesn't really have anything to contribute to the resolution of South Africa's problem because what the IMF usually contributes is dollars. We will not need dollars to to uh, resolve our fiscal crisis. We will need rand, and the people who can give us rand are the Reserve Bank. But of course, if you go down the path of the Reserve Bank monetizing your debt, uh, you begin to uh, ask uh, what the consequences of that will be for the stability of the financial system, because. One, that probably the only element of South Africa's economy that has been growing uh, in a sustained fashion over the last decade and a half has been finance and financial services and rising asset prices. So a fiscal crisis in South Africa, I mean, the, the, the pressure mounts, the social pressure mounts through debt service costs. It's not about reaching a particular threshold of debt that uh, becomes unsustainable. Whether it's 100% or 200% is not that important. What is important is how much do you have to pay uh, every year in debt, ser in servicing that debt in interest payments, and how much is that uh, uh, detracting from your revenue? So in the last uh, medium-term budget policy statement, the Treasury is forecasting that by the end of this three-year period, we will be paying 25% uh, of our revenue in debt service costs. And as that percentage rises, you, have, uh, um, you, you will have to either raise taxes significantly to pay those debt service costs or uh, erode the value of public services further to the poor. And uh, that's where your, your creeping uh, crisis uh, intensifies. And you, you will begin to, government will begin to, re, to, to see all kinds of options as attractive uh, to, to avoid resolving that problem. Uh, options such as running down, uh, I would imagine in the first instance, public sector pensions, uh, pension assets, or uh, um, beginning to uh, direct credit or to, to what they call in uh, economics, repress finance. 
uh, and to 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 force uh, banks and other financial institutions to take a role in resolving the problem uh, through various mechanisms. Um, and eventually, you, you you begin to end up in a place where trust. Uh, in in people honoring their obligations begins to break down. So so it's not a and and of course all of those things are adjudicated not in New York but by South African courts because uh, we're dealing with rand assets here. So, so um, yeah, go on. We're basically paying ourselves. We're paying we're paying we're borrowing from and repaying Standard Bank and and um, pension funds who who. To buy government debt. Is that right? Yeah. So, so the debt is held uh, largely. Well, well, the thing is, is that whoever holds the debt, it's rand denominated. Yeah. And there are certain agents that can convert their holdings into dollars quite easily. Foreign investors, for instance. Yes. Uh, but there are other, others that cannot. For instance, pension funds and you know the banking sector, the South African banking sector has uh, globally integrated balance sheets, but it is a South African banking sector that has to operate in South African by, uh, financial conditions. Given our history, I was just wondering how, you know, you almost sort of want to to be in Argentina's position where somebody else can sort your problems out because if, it, if this boils down to a bun fight between the government and South African institutions who've, who've lent money to it in RAND, um, it threatens to get incredibly messy, and you know, um, draw you know, draw drag up our past again in all sorts of nasty ways if we don't get it right. So there are a few kind of in principle uh, ways that you can resolve uh, this in, in a technical sense, resolve this these problems. Um, uh, and, and traditionally, the resort of, of governments that are unable to honor their domestic obligations has been inflation. Yeah. That might look in the far distant future, but that historically, that's been how debts are, are dealt with by sovereigns who can't honor them that are denominated in their own currency. Another one might be what is called the capital levy, which is essentially a very large wealth tax. Um, which is, uh, so, so essentially you transfer, you write off government debt against the wealth of, of private owners of capital. Um, the, the thing is, is that this, this is likely to be a long and drawn out process. That's the first thing. Uh, and the second is that it is likely to be a process of negotiation, messy as it may be, between uh, financial interests and pension holders in South Africa and the sovereign and various other actors that is drawn out over a long time. So you're right, it's going to be messy and difficult. And, and, and while it is unresolved, it is going to weigh on the prospects for a revival in South African growth. So um, certainly, I mean, another option is, is significant increases in taxation, which will probably, as you say, be required in any case, in my view. Do you expect, uh, expect anything in the budget later this month? I don't look, I don't, in a sense, the, the, all of these, this discussion about debt, and uh, I'm talking in, with a, a kind of medium to long-term perspective yeah. on, so I'm talking about the next three to five years. Right now, in the midst of this camp pandemic, this historic shock uh, to the economy, 
really, we shouldn't be, in my view, constraining expenditure or raising taxes in any kind of way this year or next year. The problem is, is that while this kind of uh, longer term uncertainty hangs over us, our ability to convince people that these are just short term responses uh, is limited. Uh, so, so the two are linked, but uh, I would be very surprised if there were tax increases in the coming budget. Okay, Michael, thank you very much. We're going to leave it there. I really do appreciate your time this morning and and your expertise and your knowledge. Thank you for that paper. It's a lovely piece of work. Um, and and good luck um, uh, at the Southern Centre for Inequality Studies, which I believe is quite new. Um, uh, once again, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, there you go. Thanks for joining me, Peter Bruce. Michael Sachs, who used to draw up the budgets, doesn't think there'll be any tax increases uh, when Tito Mbawili stands up in Parliament physically or virtually later this month, which is something to be glad about. But we are, without any question, heading for a crisis that's that's going to need to be resolved. And interestingly, clearly needs to be resolved by us. You know, there's not much he says that the IMF can do to help us. That's a valuable takeaway for me. Thank you very much for joining me again this week, and I hope to see you next week when I'll have another hopefully interesting and informative guest to present to you. Thank you. Bye-bye.